In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In Washington, D.C., there are two statues that together tell a rather remarkable story. The first of which you're probably quite accustomed to seeing, at least in photos if you've not been there. It's of Ulysses S. Grant, stands on the eastern edge of the reflecting pool. The shadow of the Capitol building casts its shadow on that statue each and every morning. It's a towering statue, of course. Grant, this solitary figure on this mighty war horse that stands as this symbol to the triumph of the human will in the face of insurmountable odds and challenges. We're familiar with him. We've, we've studied him in history. We, we understand what came at that time in the Civil War. But the other statue, which is just some two miles away, is in a nondescript park. Most folks may not even know it's there. It's of the Major General John Rawlins. Statue's moved eight times since it's finally found its permanent place, at least for now, in this nondescript park. Rawlins was the right-hand man of Grant. Before the war, um, they knew each other quite well. Rollins was a prominent attorney in Illinois. And when Grant uh, rose to the position that he was in, he asked Rollins to assist him. Rollins knew Grant very well, knew him, um, his, his successes, his failures, and even his character flaws. And so his biggest weakness, Grant, was his um, tendency towards alcohol and drunkenness when things got tough. And so when he asked Rollins to assist him, he basically said, I'll do it if you can guarantee me that if I take this position, you will not succumb to drunkenness in your role. At the start of the war, probably an easy promise, but as it drug on and the tragedies they saw and the things that they went through, it become much, became much harder to keep. But Rollins, as a trusted partner in this mission, would not let Grant waver from his promise and held him to it. And though he's lesser known, many would say in history that Ulysses S. Grant may not have even been able to climb up in the saddle had it not been for Rollins' partnership with him in those challenges. In many ways, um, we all know that we need partners with us in the journey, partners in the task, uh, partners who understand what the mission is and what is at stake. Partners, as an aside, are different than our friends. Our friends are with us for our own sake. Partners are not with us for our sake and our friendship, but are with us for the sake of the greater mission itself. They're our allies. They're going to hold us to that account. They care about us, but they care about the mission that much more. And those that are our trusted confidants are usually those who are also with us in that journey, but for the role in which we stand. So we need all of those in life together. But the church and her mission has always needed partners to continue to advance the gospel. Every local church is bound together because of their partnership in that one unified mission. And that mission, you know, is that of the last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. To go therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that Jesus taught and commanded. Every church that's worth his salt 
or her salt, of course, is founded on that premise. But as life goes on, as history goes on, as churches ebb and flow, that partnership which stands central can get tested through the good times and the bad, through the triumphs and the successes, and certainly in the trials and in the temptations. And so this morning, we actually have this wonderful reminder of what true gospel partnership looks like in this letter from Paul to Philemon. Certainly, the circumstances are very specific to Philemon and um, the reason for which Paul writes, but the principles that are lifted above it really are wonderful to be reminded of, especially as local churches, because we need to be reminded of our, our partnership together for the sake of the greater purpose, namely the mission of God that we are all on together. So this morning, um, I'd invite you to open with me to Philemon in your Bible, if you have it tucked away between Titus and Hebrews, uh, or to follow along on the screens, as I believe we find um, certainly more than, but for our purposes, three lessons about partnerships in the gospel and what it bears. So as we open to this, uh, as we get oriented here, uh, we do well to recall Paul in verse 1 is already imprisoned. This is one of his prison letters, as you know. Um, he, he's presumably met Philemon uh, probably in Ephesus, where we would suspect. Um, Colossians notes Philemon as well, but Paul at this point has not been to Colossae. So presumably, Paul has um, been preaching or teaching in Ephesus. Philemon has come to faith in Jesus Christ because of Paul's proclamation and teaching and witness and the church there gathered, and his life has been forever changed. So much so that we see in verse 2, 3, and 4 um, that really his church or the local church in that area, Colossae, had, had been gathered even in Philemon's home. Philemon is someone of prominence. Um, he's given generously of his life and his substance, not unlike our patron Barnabas, um, who helped the church get going, opening the greater courts of his house so the church could gather therein, and obviously, presumably, um, providing for their needs as they did so. So there's great um, partnership that's already there between Paul and Philemon, we see. But then if we could drill down for just a moment in verse 6, um, because verse 6, when Paul ever says at the beginning of one of his letters, and I pray for you, um, usually Paul's going to tell you what the rest of the letter is about. He gives you a preview of what his prayer is that then will be laid out in a petition as the rest of the letter unfolds. And so verse 6 is rather clunky, um, but it carries with it some, some great reminders um, that we'll look in for just a moment. I always take great heart when I look at Paul's letters and my run-on sentences because, again, we're still in the first sentence since Paul has begun in verse 4, and we continue as such throughout verse 7. So in verse 6, um, he prays the sharing of your faith. So Paul is laying a foundation here. Their partnership, their partnership is in the faith. Now that seems obvious. But again, before Paul gets to the hard stuff, he wants to lay the foundation for their partnership. It's not because of their friendship. It's not because of um, Philemon's generous substance or financial means. It's because of their faith, their shared faith and mission in the gospel. And his prayer is that it may become effective. For it to become effective, it means that they're going to do things together for the sake of the faith, for the sake of the mission of God, that any one of them alone could not do. 
the impossible things that the Holy Spirit enables them to do because of this full knowledge of every good thing that is in us, as Paul continues. That full knowledge is not just head knowledge or a recognition of what they're supposed to do, but it means that not only do they understand all that Jesus taught and commanded, but they're actually doing it. They're putting it into practice. And so Paul's call here is we've got a common goal, and I pray that it will take full effect. It will be fully realized. The things you can't do on your own that I can't do without you nor you without me and anyone else, for that matter, who is part of this mission for the sake of the gospel may come about in full effect because of their carrying out of the full knowledge of the gospel and all that is in it for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the King, for the sake of the Messiah. He's the one that enacts this. He's the reason that we exist, that we have this partnership. He's forged it in the first place. For that reason, I've derived much joy and comfort for you, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul, right there, wants to lay the foundation before he hits the sticky wicket, which is coming. He wants everybody to know um, who would read this, because these were circulated, right, letters, um, not unlike sermons might be shared today in some form or fashion. Um, he wants them to know that the reason of this partnership is not because of who Philemon is, nor what he's accomplished, nor his goals, nor his aims, but because of the gospel. That's their partnership. And for that matter, which is where he's going, anybody, as he would later write in Ephesians and elsewhere, who enters into this partnership, baptism through faith in Christ Jesus, then also is a part of this same mission and is an equal partner thereof. You see where he's going. He's teeing this up for what will lay a very weighty matter that is to come in verse 8 and following. Now let's pause there and just reflect on that point for just a moment. I think it's an obvious one, but one that always bears worth repeating in church, that we recognize the reason the church exists. That we recognize the reason we gather. We recognize the reason we do anything. While we will forge, Lord willing, lasting friendships, while we will have common goals that we pull together for, while we will give generously of our substance to do the thing God calls us to do in any time or season, all of that is only an effect of the reason we exist, which is the mission. And the mission of the church has not changed until Christ returns to claim her as his own, which is that we go and do all that he taught and commanded first as his disciples, and then we actually go out and enroll others to do the same. Right? That's our mission statement at St. Barnabas, right? Making disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ by coming together under the love of Christ, growing into his character, and going out to do all that he taught and commanded and enrolling others to do the same. We all have some variation of that if you spend enough time in church world, right? But we need to be reminded of it. Every church begins that way. But the longer churches are around, the more things they do, the more programs they run, the more um, folks that come and go, the, the, the changes in budgets, staffing, and all these things, at times we can forget the reason why we do it. And we need to be reminded that above all else, that's the goal. And Christ will see that through. We're called to be faithful to him towards that end. And so um, it's wonderful because that means that those who come through these doors, Lord willing, and, and generations or Lord willing, before generations, if Jesus returns sooner than that, right? Um, regardless, that what knits them together is not a zip code, 
It's not that they do life together in the same community or, or look like one another or, or invest in the same um, things with their kids or grandkids. It's not um, their own persuasions or leanings. It's not their own goals and aims and uh, any of that. All those things are great, but that's not what the church is about. The church is always about the mission of the gospel. And that's absolutely paramount because as Paul's going and as we'll look, there have been and there always will be friction points in any local church. It's inevitable. We're human. That's our will. It's, it's brought into that. The only thing that can bear the weight of that is the common mission upon which we all rest. And so that's what Paul wants everyone to see. That's the reason why this really hard gospel lesson is teed up, right? Jesus says you've got to leave behind any other affiliation, even your own familial one, because if that trumps the gospel, guys, just forget it. There's no point. And if you're not willing to go all in, then you know, don't, don't sign up. It's, it's a pretty hard call. But if we don't get that on the get-go, then somewhere down the line, we get a little teetery, and then that's where churches, you know, split over the silliest of things. And we mustn't let that happen because our goal is too great. Our mission is too strong. So with that background, one that you have to be grounded in, then and only then Paul gets to his plea in verse 8 and following. Because of that partnership, and Paul doesn't just use partnership lightly and then expect that, you know, he's using a little bit of language here and then he'll just kind of hit um, Philemon over the head with the finer points. He truly walks it out. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, in our language, Paul's a bishop, Paul can give a godly admonition to Philemon and tell, Paul, and tell Philemon what to do. That's what spiritual leaders are in charge to do. They can direct in a certain way. Paul chooses not to do that. Paul says, I'm going to treat you like a partner, and as such, I'm going to rather appeal to you in love. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner for Christ, I appeal to you, and here's the heart of the matter, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. So if you've not spent time in this, in this text, Onesimus was Philemon's slave. Onesimus ran away, found himself under the care of Paul, under that time, God's greater purposes come about. Onesimus converts to Christianity. Now the game has changed. Because according to the legal system of that day, right, um, not unlike my Civil War image, they were treated more as property than people. And as such, Philemon, even as a believer, had every right to discipline Onesimus however he saw fit, even to the point of death. And so now that he's under Paul's care, there's a rather precarious situation. What are they going to do? So Paul's teeing this up, and then in, in kind of a comical play on words, in parentheses, he was formerly useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to me and hopefully to you in the future. Onesimus' name means useful. So Paul's working on a little play on his name, saying, look, he's not lived up even to his name. I get that. But he has in my care, and I trust he will when he returns to you. But what Paul's asking is very hard. Um, Paul is entrusting the partnership of the gospel to all three players and trusting the Holy Spirit will do what is impossible to bring about the full effect that they could not do on their own. Which is, Paul doesn't direct and manage the situation and say, Onesimus, go back and Philemon, receive him in this way and here's how that's going to look. Instead, Paul's asking Onesimus to go back 
to Philemon, not knowing what beholds him, but saying, but now you're an equal partner in the gospel because you too have come to faith in Christ Jesus. And this partnership now includes you, which reframes all relationships, just as we've heard, right? And then Philemon is being told in the same manner, I'm sending him back to you, but you think good, long, and hard about how you receive him because you do not receive a slave, but you receive a brother in Christ. I mean, this is a pretty sticky wicket, about as tough as it gets. So Paul ends that section, I'm sending you back, sending my very own heart. So what Paul wants to be seen, the first area that he's laying out is this, this partnership, this partnership for the sake of the gospel is not just something they recognize, it's not just something that they do in nice and kind ways, but it requires a complete reordering of everything. Reordering of relationships. Paul's pulling forward those words that Father Greg read of the gospel. It reorders all relationships in life. Um, familial, work, whatever the case may be. And as such, you've got to square up against that, is what Paul is essentially saying to Philemon, but applies to us as well. It reorders our whole life. And if it doesn't, then get on with it, essentially, is, is what, you know, the, the message would be. So if we proclaim faith in Christ, and, and the end of the Great Commission is to go and do and teach all that Jesus taught and commanded, that requires something of us. And when it does, it begins in us, but then it flows through us, does it not? And so it requires that we square up against that, and it makes some, some really hard challenges. The first century of Christianity is filled with the blood of the martyrs because they made difficult calls to live their faith down to their dying breath, reordering their life, recognizing that, sure, it might have been a whole lot easier just to burn some incense before an image of an emperor. I mean, what harm could be done there? But they would not buckle because they had given their hearts to Christ Jesus, and they knew what that meant. It means in um, fast-forwarding in history, in Rwanda, right, Two tribes go into their own civil war. One nearly wipes the other one out. When plowshares and machetes drop, the nearly extinct tribe looks at the others and says, because of Christ, we cannot follow him and still have hate in our hearts. Therefore, we forgive you. Talk about tough. I mean, these are really, really hard decisions. And it comes down to the little ones that may be mountains to us, but maybe molehills to others. How do we live it out with anger in relationship to families? How do we reorganize our days and our lives that aren't for us, but for God's glory? We have to spend some time thinking about what that means and how we reorder our lives for the sake of the mission and the partnership that we share. Now, the last part is this. Paul recognizes that reordering is not easy, and he's not just saying, reorder it, and y'all figure it out. While I'm hanging out in jail, you guys, you guys work that out and let me know how that goes. No, rather, he's, he's willing to put his money where his mouth is, quite literally, in verse 17. So, if you consider me your partner, Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. So, see what Paul's doing there. Paul's modeling the gospel, right? Paul's a tent maker, writing a man of great means, saying, you know what? If you've lost out on Onesimus being gone from your midst, I'll pay it. From prison, by the way. Um, I'll figure that out. I'll send a courier. 
Timothy's always good for a run somewhere, so we'll send him to you, right? And I'll take care of it. And I'm the one who's writing it, not, not someone else, not one of my other folks that writes my letters for me. I'm writing it, and oh, by the way, again, um, remember who brought you to faith in Christ Jesus, but I'm not calling you into account because of that. I mean, these are pretty bold words. And, and really what Paul's doing is modeling something that should come right to mind, right? Who else has stepped into a situation that was not theirs to carry, took full weight responsibility, paid the price, though it was not theirs to pay, for the sake of reconciling others back to God? Jesus. Paul is living out the reordering of the gospel in his own life so that Philemon and Onesimus say, this is what the partnership looks like. You've got to do what he does. And it comes with tough calls. And it comes at a cost. But that cost, if you're going to call yourself a partner in the gospel, is worth it. And then this is perhaps one of my favorite parts, quite frankly. Yes, brother, I want you to benefit um, from your benefit in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Um, I'm confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do what I say and even more. This is so great. Verse 22. I mean, this is what a true partnership is. Oh, by the way, why don't you prepare a room for me? I'll, I'll be coming as soon as I get out of jail, and I plan on staying with you um, and spending some time with you. I'm, I'm grateful for your partnership towards that end. Did you catch that? Paul is not saying that this is a dissolution of our partnership. I'm going to hit you with a really hard topic, and then you're not going to hear from me again. No, he's basically saying, we're still in this. Whether you like it or not, I'm going to actually show up on your doorstep. So I want to see how this thing goes, and I'm really excited to come and be a part of this and see how your church is flourishing and all that God is doing. I mean, Paul doesn't see this issue as the issue that will divide them. The only thing that dissolves that partnership is when Jesus returns and says, it is complete. And so Paul can write on very difficult matters and then say things like, I'm going to be there soon. Prepare a room for me. Um, I know it's been a really kind of tough letter I wrote, but um, I really look forward to seeing you in person. And in other letters, right? Oh, by the way, let me do the hard stuff in writing so that when I show up, we don't have to deal with that. Um, I mean, Paul is just straightforward as can be. And it's wonderful. It's refreshing because what Paul is pointing to is the partnership is so much bigger than anything that could bear weight on it. Um, and, the, and the last point for us to consider is Paul's not unaware that we must recognize the partnership and that it reorders our lives. Paul knows that there's a restoration that has to come. Um, he makes restitution for Onesimus with Philemon if it's required. And he's leaving that in Philemon's care. He knows that that process will cost something. And he's not skirting around that. So he wants the church to see when you choose to do all that Jesus taught and commanded, it's going to be hard. And I'll model what Christ modeled for us and what you should model for one another and to the world itself. It's going to seem so upside down, they cannot help but hear about this thing that you call Christianity, because this doesn't make any sense to them. So as we think about that, I think we have to ask ourselves, what might be required of us? Um, where are we here? Do we need to be reminded of our common partnership in the gospel? I would contend at any start of the fall, before we jump into anything, it's good to begin with the end in sight once more. Um, that's a great reminder. But what in our lives or relationships or um, just in our spheres of influence may need reordering and what does it require of us in some sort of 
of restoration, either in relationships or a restoration reconciling uh, with the Lord himself, wherever that may be, so that we can be full gospel partners towards that end. Because we, we are in it together. God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, as Paul will write, as a whole. And so we have to remember that that supersedes anything and everything that we do, and we come under that every time we purpose to do anything. And so we have to look first at our own hearts, we have to bring ourselves back under the main goal, and then we have to look with every calculated decision, as Jesus reminds us as well. Think about that before you jump in. And so we should give cause for pause and discernment and be reminded of what true partnerships in the gospel truly entail. So that as we bring ourselves under that, we know what we're in for, certainly, but we also know what we're asking of others as well. So I pray that as we begin the fall, um, we would take these words to heart, that we'd remember what the mission is. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing added, nothing removed, other than first being a disciple of Jesus and then going out and making disciples of Jesus. And the way we do that is by knowing everything he taught and commanded and actually living it out. And that comes at a price. So might I urge you, as we begin the fall, find ways to re-engage beyond worship, to be re-grounded in the partnership, scripture, right? That we know what Jesus taught and commanded. And then we find ways to live it out in big and small ways so that we might be more as Christ is. And as Paul did for Philemon, they model that to the world so that they may come to find the same. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.